Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I hate that musical with blinding hot rage. Wait, what? Death. The Music, music Man. Man. The worst musical in American history. No, the worst musical in American history is a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I will we got fight trouble. You. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lynn and Jane Coaston. I've got a great episode coming for you. I want to mention at the top that we are doing every Wednesday through the midterms. The midterms happen on a Tuesday, so then we will have a episode the Wednesday after that. Midterm specials where we're looking at the sort of big issues, the big races, the big themes driving the headlines. But today we're going to talk about, well, it's not unrelated to the midterms, but Donald Trump, he said a lot of things yesterday. One of the things— Donald Trump is, is having a normal week. He's been saying a lot of things. One of the things that he has been saying is that Democrats are responsible for a caravan of Central American immigrants who are assaulting our borders. And there is, in fact, a caravan— Yes. So yeah. that that much is true. Unlike some things that are going on here, you can see actual video on cable news, as I did this morning, of this caravan. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, in terms of sort of made up election topics, it's a pretty good one because since the caravan does exist, there's like B-roll of the caravan when people are talking about this. So something you told me a long time ago is like you should think about like – TV news with the sound off. And so I saw that at the gym today. And I saw there were like some chirons about Trump and saying something about the border. And then there were like pictures of all these Central American people and they were doing something. It was a little hard to say exactly what it was images of, but like there were vehicles and people and it seemed disorderly and they yeah. were moving in some direction. I am so glad we're starting with this because you may recall way back in January of 2016, you guys probably don't, you're normal people who don't have to do this for a living. Matt and Jane may recall at the beginning of 2016, Donald Trump's very first TV ad during the presidential primary. Shockingly, it was this anti-immigration, you know, we need to 
get security for our borders, yada, yada, and showed an image in the way that attack ads do, this like very ominous black and white image of a mass of people. And Trump then got in trouble because it was showing a mass of people from like Morocco and implying it was a mass of people trying to get into the United States. This is B-roll of a mass of people who are in theory, aiming to get to the United States. And so it's something that the Trump administration can use to serve the exact same function that it's wanted stock photos of masses of people to stand in for for yeah. several years. So that was it's just the like small wrinkle that B-roll can't tell you that they're currently moving slowly through Guatemala. <laughs> right. Well, so now, now let's bring it back. So like what is actually happening here? This is now the second season, I guess, that I have heard of the caravan. Right. This is so there was a brouhaha that played out very similarly to this one in terms of a large group of people coming through from the Northern Triangle of Central America, which is Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, crossing the Guatemala and Mexico border. This was early April. And cable news picked up on it. And from cable news, Donald Trump found out about it. And Donald Trump freaked out. And Donald Trump threatened to cut off foreign aid to Central America. He threatened Mexico. He alternately cajoled and threatened Mexico, telling them to stop the caravan. And ultimately, Mexico did kind of forcibly disperse it so that instead of over a thousand people, by the time people kind of regrouped and got up to the U.S., it was a few hundred people. And it wasn't really something the president was freaked out over anymore, uh, or at least, you know, tweeting about. That was an annual event that's organized by a particular human rights group that operates in Central America and Mexico. This is not that. This is a trip that started as 150 Hondurans in San Pedro Sula, which is the city that has been called the murder capital of the world for a few of the last several years at very least. And as it went through Honduras, kind of agglomerated people for the very good policy reason that if you're a Central American and you're considering going up to the U.S., The journey through Mexico is extremely dangerous, both because you are liable to be victimized by whoever you've paid to smuggle you, they could be tied into criminal networks, and because the Mexican authorities have been acting at the U.S.'s behest to stop people from coming in. So traveling as part of a large group has a safety in numbers element to it. So that's kind of why there is an appeal to these caravans. It makes it hard for a country that doesn't have a ton of border capacity to stop this group. So the Guatemalan police, even though they threatened and, you know, tried to stop this group of Hondurans at the Guatemalan border, didn't ultimately, you know, there was a standoff. Guatemalans stepped aside. They have started coming through. They haven't gotten to Mexico yet, so we don't know if the same thing is going to play out as it did in April. But it's followed the same script so far of Donald Trump freaks out that there's a large group of people who are saying they want to come to the U.S. makes it a problem for the U.S.'s relationship with Mexico and with Central America. So can we just try to be really clear on what the phenomenon, right? So for years now, there have been large numbers of people from Central America trying to come to the U.S. through Mexico. Right. This is the primary flow of unauthorized immigrants into the U.S. It's not like Mexicans haven't accounted for a majority of apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border since 2014. And so in the classical form of this Central American migration, it has been small groups of people in a covert manner trying to make their way through Mexico, dealing with the fact that it is 
illegal in Mexico for them to be traversing in this way and dealing with the large amounts of criminality and violence that are present in Mexico. Right. Right. So then an alternate theory, instead of sneaking, which has become very dangerous, is you can go in a big group. And in a big group, obviously, the problem is you're conspicuous. Well, that's the virtue and the, right? Right. The creation of caravans is in part a reaction to Mexico doing the U.S.'s bidding on immigration enforcement, right? Like, Mexico has really stepped up its work to intercept people who are coming through Mexico to the United States to detain them, to deport them. Some estimates say that there have been 950,000 Central American migrants who have been deported out of Mexico trying to get to the U.S. And there have been human rights reports that Mexico has not cared a ton about people's human rights, that it's engaged in as much as torture as attempting to deter them so that they don't try again and get to the United States. This really is, I mean, obviously Mexico is not simply a puppet of the U.S. in this regard, but this is something that the U.S. has really asked Mexico to step up on in Mexico. And and the theory of the mass migration, right, is that if you're like a couple people— trying to go through Mexico. The Mexican authorities can, can surround you, you and right, apprehend you yes. and, and overpower you. Yes. And then who knows what happens. Whereas if there's a bunch, a whole bunch of you moving very overtly, yes. they can line up as the Guatemalan authorities did and kind of be like, hey, you have to stop. Right. But right. then if you don't stop, they could, of course, open fire on a large group of unarmed people, including women and children. But the Right. Problems with that are obvious. And so it becomes this thing where it is both visible on American cable news that this caravan is coming and that nobody is stopping them to rapidly disperse a large group of vehicles moving through Guatemala is, of course, to to do it in a non-horrifying way is very challenging. Yeah, I think that it's worth distinguishing between Guatemala and Mexico here because Mexico does have a certain amount of state capacity that Guatemala doesn't. And the way that Mexico dealt with the caravan in spring was they did allow them to pass through. But after, you know, several days of tantrums from President Trump, they essentially did do the kind of surrounding and dispersing thing by not just having security forces there, but having immigration authorities there and saying, okay, we are going to process you guys. If you want to seek asylum in Mexico, you'll be able to present yourself there. If you don't, we'll process you for travel visas. So that succeeded in dispersing the caravan and reducing substantially reducing the number of people going up to the U.S., but it wasn't the kind of horrifying open fire solution. It's totally possible. As a matter of fact, it is most likely that's what's going to happen to this one. Like the Mexican government has outright said, well, it's, it's actually said that it's going to take a slightly harder line, that it's going to be at the border and prevent anyone who doesn't have valid papers from crossing the border unless they want to present themselves for asylum in Mexico, and then they might get detained so that they couldn't say they're going to present themselves for asylum in Mexico, get it's some like, kind of papers, It's like a defense and then in depth strategy in Mexico, right? Like Mexico itself is physically yes. large. Yes. And so they're trying to constantly thin the group out. Like right. some people will turn away here. Some people will apply for asylum. Some of them yes. will be detained. Some will move forward. And you're hoping to keep getting – I mean, what they had last time was eventually a relatively small group of people. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a few hundred north. people, but like a few hundred people isn't a thousand people. And then they were stopped there. 
Right. So I think it's worth kind of distinguishing between a lot of the power of this is the cable news imagery. But there really also is a policy agenda of the problem from the Trump administration's point of view isn't that they might end up sneaking into the U.S. unidentified. Like, that's not going to happen. The Trump administration sees it as a policy problem that people are trying to get to the U.S., even when they're several thousand miles away. Right. And I think it's interesting because Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in Mexico City today having a meeting with uh, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto and Mexico's foreign secretary to talk about this issue, especially since yesterday— Trump said that he would call up the U.S. military and, in all caps, close our southern border, which, as Dara, as you've pointed out, they cannot actually do. Right. Like, not only can they not actually do it, but it's extremely important to U.S.-Mexico relations that they not do that, right? Like, they literally just negotiated this trade agreement (laughs) that was going to facilitate trade along the U.S.-Mexico border. It is wild that Mike Pompeo is currently in Mexico City. It is even wilder that yesterday I was reporting, I was at an event in Washington, D.C., a think tank event with the Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection and the Mexican ambassador to the U.S. about border security partnerships, which had been scheduled several weeks in advance and not canceled despite all of this happening, and where, honest to goodness, most of the things they were saying could have been said by, like, their equivalents four years ago. It was such a policy-minded talk about the various ways in which they're cooperating and how important it is for them to cooperate and how important it is for them to continue to give money to Central America to develop economically. And it was as if Donald Trump did not exist. Actually, it's a common theme of this administration is to pretend that Trump is not there and to do things just as if he's just – I mean, I I think I said this earlier on a a different episode of The Weeds that a lot of this administration and Trump himself sometimes act as if he is just merely an observer watching all of this take place on television and tweeting through it. But this is another instance in which Trump and the Trump administration are two separate things. Right. I mean, you can imagine a world where Donald Trump genuinely is just like – glued to his television and is mad, Mexico goes forward and does its thing, which it's already planning to do, and then Trump gets happy again. I don't know that we should necessarily assume that that's the world that we live in, because as much as we talk about Trump being mercurial and, like, forgetting about stuff and being kind of a victim of the cable news cycle— when Donald Trump got angry about the caravan in spring, he stayed pretty damn angry, right? Right. And that actually did end up having downstream policy impacts, even when he couldn't physically close the border. I mean, the difference here with some things that Trump gets geared up about, and then his administration seems to be pursuing a somewhat different course, is that contrary to Donald Trump's rhetoric about this subject, the Obama administration's policy in this regard was already quite hawkish. Right? Like, it's not like what the previous administration was doing was saying, like, Mexico, like, please make sure there's no potholes on the roads so that the Central American caravans can get here <laughs> right, quickly. Right, right. When they were telling Mexico to make the train called La Bestia faster, it wasn't so that people could get there faster. So it was harder for people to jump on. Right. So it's like the policy delta is just not that big because the Obama administration's view already, right – was that migration from Central America and the asylum claims being made were largely 
bogus, that this was really economic migration, that the United States is not a home for unlimited economically motivated flows from Latin America, and that what the United States needs is a mix of deterrent, interception from Mexico, and development and some kind of problem solving in Central America. But Barack Obama's politics being Barack Obama's politics on the level of like memes, right? Like his idea was to try to make it calmer, yeah. make, pe- make people feel like this wasn't a huge problem, make residents and governments in Mexico and the Northern Triangle feel good about the United States as a partner in this and try to manage a political coalition that involves some human rights and immigrant rights advocates who were – on the lookout for people being treated too poorly. So there was a kind of a hemming and hawing aspect to things. Trump's politics on this is very, very different, right? He enjoys raising the temperature on this kind of issue. He enjoys being seen as confrontational with Latin American political leaders. But the actual thing, like the intergovernmental relationship has just not transformed in some profound way. Right. So that is to date true. But I do think it's worth talking a little in a little more detail about the policy establishment view toward Mexico and Central America versus the hardcore MAGA view mm-hmm. toward Mexico and Central America. Here, actually, let's take let's, a break, let's yeah. take a break and, and, then, and, then, and then let's dive into that. Yeah. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. 
Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So you've pretty well limbed the Obama administration's view, which is the same view that I think a lot of people deep in the policy weeds in the Trump administration have on this issue, which is U.S. law makes a really bright line distinction between, as you said, economic migration and humanitarian migration. And the assumption is that if you are coming here because you are being persecuted, then you have a chance to present yourself, seek asylum, go through that process, you know, possibly ultimately get legal status in the U.S. If you are coming here for economic reasons, you will be immediately, you know, like once you get caught, you don't get to say, but I'm coming here for economic reasons. Like you'll get deported pretty much immediately upon getting apprehended at the border. The Obama administration and the kind of policy consensus in in D.C., is that the people who are coming from the Northern Triangle of Central America are coming because there aren't economic opportunities in their home country and there isn't the quote-unquote rule of law to create those economic opportunities. The extent to which gang violence has created very high rates of mortal peril was always kind of weirdly understated or only mentioned in certain contexts by the Obama administration, partly because once you say, okay, yes, these people are fleeing for their lives, that creates the question of, well, why aren't you saying that more of them would qualify for asylum? Partly because they wanted to retain good relationships with Central American governments. And you can't talk to a Central American government that has serious questions about its state capacity and the complicity of its law enforcement forces with gangs and turn to them and say, well, you can't control your space. You can't control your state. So these people are coming to us because there's essentially no state where they live. But I mean, this this is also important because in in an important sense, right, asylum policy is a form of foreign policy. Yes. Right? That— Immigration policy is part of economic policy, right? Like countries have different views of like what they're trying to do with their their domestic social situation and they make immigration rules to that. But then countries also do a thing like where they they will say like we are taking these refugees from Cuba and that's like fuck you Fidel Castro. Right. right. Like that's that's the point of that. Right. right. And so this is, to, this is why under the last fiscal year, the U.S. took more refugees from Ukraine than anywhere else in Europe and beat its refugee targets for Europe, even as it fell drastically short of its targets for everywhere else, because there was this existing congressional provision that religious minorities in the former Soviet Union should have an easier right, way to get here right. because fuck you, Soviet Union. Right. So in a, so in a classical sense, right, to accept the notion that people who are leaving the Northern Triangle have a valid asylum claim would not just have implications for the number of people who can come, but it would be a foreign policy statement, right? That the United States is saying that these Northern Triangle governments are like off the rails. Right, right. And you literally, pe- as a legal matter, asylum law is really built for persecution by the government. One of the problems and one of the things that the Jeff Sessions Justice Department has really been working to change policy on is that a lot of these claims from Northern Triangle asylum seekers are based on gang violence, not based on government violence. So the question of how much do you have to show that the government was complicit in this or didn't care is a really relevant point In admitting asylum seekers from gang violence in Honduras and El Salvador, you would be saying the government is widespread 
allowing gang members to persecute large swaths of their population. Right. It's not something that you can like show up to a bilat and be cool with them right. after. And the establishment view is like, no, like this is basically an economic development problem. We want right. these governments to help us and we want to help them and we want people to not come here and there's going to be like jobs and it'll be better. But like on an intergovernmental level, we're all friends. Right. It's interesting because if you think about the way that the rule of law gets talked about in this context, like they'll say, oh, yeah, we need the rule of law in these countries so that there can be more private investment. We have a lack of willingness by business to invest in these countries because they're worried that the government isn't going to enforce the rule of law, which is a very, frankly, 90s era neoliberal law and economics view of things that the point, the reason that state capacity in, say, Guatemala matters is so you can have the expectation of a regular business environment, right. which, you know, creates top-down investment, which will then allow people to be less than impoverished and stop them from wanting to come to the U.S., which has historically kind of wound up with getting the U.S. in a bit of trouble in, in, in this particular argument, because I think that that's something that we have seen across kind of the Western hemisphere in terms of how we how we talk about other governments and how we talk about wanting governments to make it easier or better or safer not for necessarily their poorest people, but for American investment that could logically then turn into a out-of-poverty movement for the poorest people in those countries. But something I, I want to get to is that, again, I think that there's what's actually taking place with this caravan, and then there's kind of the politics of it in this country, which is interesting because um, the video that Trump posted came from Matt Getz's Twitter feed, who then he got it from weirdo right-wing internet. I think it's interesting that how the flow of information about immigration and about this caravan has gotten to Trump. It's been through cable news and it's been through Twitter. And I think that when I talk to conservatives about this particular issue, Heritage Foundation came out with something yesterday on this talking about how this is a left-wing project, but they're very concerned about the human rights of the people in this caravan. And the responses they're getting is like, it's George Soros and the Democrats. So I think that there is an interesting political argument that I think we should have a bit of a conversation. Right. So, well, yeah, this do, is I the MAGA wanna, view. Right, yeah. right, right, right. So Donald Trump's position on immigration fundamentally going way the heck back to the very first, you know, going down the escalator at Trump Tower speech is that emigration is countries sending their people to other countries, right? right? That like it's a total 180 from the the problem with the Northern Triangle is that governments don't have the capacity to ensure business investment. Donald Trump assumes that governments have the power to do whatever they want and that if they are not doing something, it's because they have chosen not to. So in the same way that Trump's attack on the diversity visa is that, you know, countries are deliberately selecting particular people to apply for this U.S. visa program, his line on this caravan has been that Honduras needed to stop its people from leaving. And having not stopped them, they need to now bring them back, which if you take that statement literally, he is calling for Honduras to invade Guatemala to forcibly repatriate, a, 
you know, thousands of Honduran citizens uh, in violation of, you know, well, both like starting a war and violating several human rights conventions. And if that doesn't happen, then the U.S. will invade Mexico to secure the U.S. border. I think that's what the, you know, sending the military is. Obviously, taking Donald Trump literally is a fool's errand, but— it's obviously true that Trump doesn't believe that a country can fail to stop its people from leaving. And so this all stick, no carrot approach that he has where like with every breath he's threatening the exact same foreign aid that the traditional Washington consensus says is the thing to stop people from coming. Right. Or that he's saying, well, you know, that's we need to cut that off so that then they'll be scared into stopping people. It's the traditional Trump belief of you know, the only thing stopping anything from happening is a lack of will, combined with this very zero-sum, there's no need for the U.S. to care about what happens in other countries because fundamentally we can look out for ourselves and inspire everyone else to look out for us. That is kind of fraught when it comes to freaking out about a caravan that isn't at the U.S.-Mexico border yet, right. right? Like, it's one thing to say we're going to build the wall, right? If Donald Trump was saying, this is why we need the wall so that even though these people are coming through these countries, they won't be able to get here, that would be one thing. But saying, well, it is a threat to our sovereignty that a group of people is currently in Guatemala, and then on the other hand saying, and that's why other governments need to act in our interest to stop them— runs into a certain amount of policy reality pretty quickly, which is, I, you know, which is why we're now kind of seeing these leaks about fights within the White House mm-hmm. in, in which any attempt to kind of pursue the MAGAite line is running into a John Kelly-shaped wall. Right. And there's also in that the fact that there are sometimes in life tensions between, like, wanting to to solve problems and wanting to have issues. Right. And yes. and that to me feels like a big thing, right? Like a, yes. a slightly paradoxical aspect of Trumpian politics is that on the economy, he kind of just says like, well, the economy is better now. So I did a good job. Right. But the like basic politics of like visceral fear and physical threat it doesn't, like, work that well. Um, no, it, right? it, the yeah. pitch, you know, I think that we've seen this in a bunch of domestic issues, that pitching everything is better, we're all fine, is not a great, especially for the midterms, it's not a great electoral message. Right. That's saying that, like, you have a lot more money because of the tax bill. It's not working. But MS-13, that right. might so work. It has, to, it has to continue to be the case that immigration from Latin America is a imminent threat to your family while also not being Donald Trump's fault that your family is no longer safe from this threat. So that means it has to be somebody else's fault, yes. right? And that means that, you know, when when Trump was a candidate, the most reasonable thing to say was that it was Barack Obama's fault, right? right? And so the solution was to make Donald Trump president. Now there's a sort of mixed pitch of like it's congressional Democrats' fault in which Trump is running into the problem that every president has in the midterms, which is that like people expect the president to run the country and like don't want to hear about the congressional minority party and the filibuster rule and like two uncooperative Republican senators. Especially when you can't, when it's not that you're pointing to a specific like 
law that Democrats passed or anything. You're just saying that the stat- the bipartisan status quo of the last decade on treatment of children and families right. is now and, somehow Democrats' fault. And particularly fault. because Donald Trump has elevated this issue, right? Like, in some sense, this whole policy constellation existed in 2013. But, like, it's Donald Trump who's been telling us all that we need to care about it a lot. Donald Trump is already the president. So, like, Donald Trump should fix it. One possible thing, though, is that there is a foreign adversary and that, like, we need to rally behind Donald Trump and defeat this foreign adversary. And, And so that's, like, one form of appeal. But then another view, right, it's, like, if you take the underlying problem very seriously and aren't that into media politics, it's like you just want to get the Mexican government to do you a favor, right? And so then— A favor that they are already, even before you said anything, largely doing. I mean, doing. largely doing, but it's like I'm sure, you know, John right, Kelly, no, I mean, John Kelly ran Southcom. I'm sure he can send like a huge memo of like here's a whole bunch of stuff I want the Mexican government to do, but he would actually want them to do it rather than to be seen on television as yelling at the Mexican government. There are lots of domestic issues in Mexico right now because bear in mind, Enrique Peña Nieto is about to leave office. He's going to be succeeded by AMLO, Andres Manuel López Obrador, uh, who's going to take office at the beginning of December. It's not exactly as if they couldn't, in theory, stand up to the U.S. if they really wanted to, but they've decided that their long-term strategic interests are to, you know— talk to the adults in the room and to continue to cooperate because right. that's, you know, but— Well, also, if, I do think if Mexico I, throws down with the United States of America, it's not going to be for the sake of asylum seekers from Honduras. Yes, that's entirely fair. Personally, I think that the kind of solution that no one is talking about, as long as we're going to stick on policy, and then I, I do want to kind of get back to the politics of this, but the solution no one is talking about is as long as the U.S. is— giving all of this aid and support to Mexico for the purposes of immigration enforcement, they could also be giving support to Mexico for the purposes of implementing its own asylum policy because Mexico's asylum laws are in theory more generous than the U.S.'s, but in practice, like, they're just detaining people. Right. So it's not like there aren't solutions that haven't been tried. But the thing about the foreign adversary, which gets back to what Jane was saying about this Matt Getz video, is that... Donald Trump doesn't have to endorse the idea that George Soros is sending people. Right. Like, you're right. Trump has been running into this problem of, like, trying to blame congressional Democrats. And that that sounds on its face ludicrous. Like, no one genuinely believes that Nancy Pelosi is flying down to Honduras and going, fly, my pretties, fly. Right? So, okay. Someone <laughs> genuinely believes that. I mean, that, they are I'm really certain. saying that. This is right? a real thing. This is a real phenomenon that I have seen. And it's not, you know, I know when people are like, everything weird is on Twitter. I'm like, yes, that's true. But people have genuine thoughts on Twitter. And this idea that, like, somehow this is the work of the left right before oh, right. the midterms. No, it's. The left, I totally— But yes, yes right. this is this is why the Soros key is so right. important, right? Because this video clip, which we'll put in the show notes if for some earthly reason you want to watch it and haven't, it's a clip of someone going through a mass of people handing out money and saying, you know, the women first. That's all it is. Yep. It's not like—it's in Spanish, but that has somehow, in the mind of Matt Getz, turned into someone asterisk— asterisk, probably George Soros, handing out money to Hondurans to go to the U.S. Right. This is that they are being paid or bribed to do this in time for the midterms. 
maybe to vote illegally? Like, that's been something that's been implied? Yeah, the implication here is that they would come and via George Soros, and we can put, you know, I, I th- I've written a George Soros explainer and talked about this before. He is a Hungarian-American billionaire who now has become like, you know how like the Koch brothers were sort of? It's like the Koch brothers times 87 plus a weird religious anti-Semitic element that many on the right believe that he is secretly behind basically everything terrible or not terrible in the world. But like this idea that they are trying to send undocumented immigrants to vote in the midterms. And it's interesting, though, because the fact that this video has gotten so much play while depicting nothing, and it's not, you know, this is not taking, Trump implied that, like, oh, this is taking place, like, on the border. And I'm like, no, it's taking place not on our border. It's taking place on someone else's border. And something that's interesting, and I actually saw it on your Twitter feed, Dara, is that yesterday at a rally in Montana, Trump said of, you know, the immigration, and I'm using his term problem, I have caused the problem. I'm taking full blame. You know why? Everyone's like in shock. It's my problem. I caused it because I have created such an incredible economy. I have created so many jobs that everybody wants to come in. And I think that this is such an interesting idea because it's the first time, you know, we were talking about how the MAGA view of immigration is that, you know, Honduras is like, flying people here because it's, you know, it's the Cuban boat lift from Scarface and that they're purposely sending the worst people to go do terrible things here. But this is the first time the idea that like, oh, there's like an economic incentive that would cause people to want to come here to seek economic gains. Like in Trumpian logic, it almost kind of sort of makes some sense, even though the majority of the people involved in the caravan are coming for humanitarian reasons, I believe. I mean, it's a mixed flow. If we somehow had an administration that were starting from policy and going, okay, some of these people have humanitarian concerns, some of them don't. Like we really, the key thing is to find the people with humanitarian concerns and let them in, which to be clear is not the tact that the Obama administration took either, then we would have be having really complicated conversations about like, all right, is someone who says they're fleeing gang violence, but is coming from a very impoverished village where the other person in the caravan, you know, who's their neighbor is saying, I'm going because I can't feed my children on a dollar a day. Like, who among those is a deserving asylum seeker, yada, yada, yada. That is not the world we live in and not the conversation we are having. I mean, also- I don't think that Donald Trump seriously believes that people are coming for jobs, though, right? Like, yeah. I think that's basically think that's a laugh line so that people at his rallies can be reminded that the Everything economy is, is doing great. But I think it's worth highlighting that Trump doesn't have to fully endorse the George Soros midterm vote bribery theory to help it gain strength, not only by literally retweeting the Getz video, but because Donald Trump has been saying for years that the only reason people come to the U.S. is someone else is sending them. Right. I'm I'm actually curious, you know, like how much Trump's whole view of immigration was just influenced by watching Scarface. I'm beginning to be pretty sure that the first 10 minutes of Scarface in which— the main character is interviewed by the police and insults them, and they just let him go into the country anyway. Well, so and he hooks up with his best friend, Angel. So to, to, and to, to, to explain what we're wrong. talking about, not just the movie, like a real thing that did happen, right? Is that the Cuban government 
decided to screw with the United States, which the United States had been screwing with the Cuban government by having a very generous asylum policy for Cubans, whose purpose was to essentially embarrass the Cuban government by making it easy for people to flee. And then we could talk about all these people right, who were right, fleeing Cuba right. and like how terrible Cuba was and and blah, 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 blah. So they did a little uh, – I don't know what you want to call it, like a little judo on us. Yeah, it's and, the Muriel boat lift. Right, and and sent a huge, really did send a huge passel of basically undesirables yes. from Cuba into the United States to say to the Carter administration, basically like, how do you like this now? Right. Um, and they did not like it at <laughs> no, all. No, no, but I mean, I think this is important because it's like, there's a theoretical legal framework in which, like, there's asylum seekers and there's economic migration right. and, and it matters a lot. There's a real world in which, like, countries are always trying to manage flows of human beings. And part of the understanding of a generous political asylum policy is that it will be sparingly used, right? So, like, if you sneak from North Korea through the northern border with China, then all the way down and around and show up in South Korea, you will be welcomed as a defector. But the South Korean government does not actually want huge quantities of impoverished North Koreans showing up in South Korea. So they make this difficult. Like, they could have a consulate in China near the North Korean border, but, like, they don't. No. Right? Like, they want to be welcoming, but they don't actually want to welcome a lot of people. And that was the U.S. and Cuba, right? So there were, like, these big internment camps. It, uh, I think Bill Clinton thought it, it cost him his, his reelection as governor of Arkansas. There were uh, a large number of people were, were sent over there. The economic impact studies of the Mario Boat Lift are, like, almost shockingly optimistic yeah. on the result of this, given the sort of poor conditions. But critically— this was really unusual. Yeah. Like, countries don't do this. No. Um, although, I, Cuba did do it once. It's a notable it, event. And it was a and, singular and notable event that resulted in Brian De Palma making a movie about it. Right, and it's, it's a good movie. Uh, but it's neither fiction, but also not like the way that the world right. works. But Trump talks about all migration from Latin America as if it's always married. Yeah. Yes. We should take another break, and then I kind of want to use this to talk about the actual decision calculus and the things that actually do matter when people are making decisions to leave. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The... 
Trump administration or certain people within the Trump administration are actually like beginning to say publicly, like the commissioner of customs and border protection said this yesterday, and I was kind of surprised to actually hear it, that you can't stop people from leaving just by telling them that they shouldn't leave and that the journey is dangerous. Right. Um, There's the crazy, you know, people are only leaving because their countries send them. And then there's the kind of, well, we are saving people by not wanting them to come to the U.S. because it's more dangerous for them on the journey. So, like, we are doing them a favor by not allowing them into our country so that they are inspired not to leave. That view has generally been, you know, grounded in the idea that, oh, they just don't understand how dangerous this journey is. Because rationally, you know, if you did assume that people knew how dangerous the journey was and they were showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border anyway, you would have to conclude that they had made the calculation that it was more dangerous to be where they were, which would strengthen a humanitarian migration case. So they've kind of used this ignorance dodge, which has led to, on a couple of occasions, both under Obama and under Trump, a desire to pour money into advertisements, telling people, no, you won't be able to make it into the U.S., or telling people, you know, oh, you or your child will, like, die on the way, something like that. They are now acknowledging that that kind of top-down information campaign isn't super effective. This isn't necessarily to say that people have perfect information. The way that this particular Central American flow is being structured is a lot of it really is due to the capacity of smuggling organizations, right? Like, there's definitely a reason that once Mexican immigration to the U.S. subsided in the wake of the Great Recession, that Central American migration increased. And it wasn't just that, like, it wasn't just that conditions in those countries are very bad. They had been very bad. It's also that there was now a network with capacity to bring them up into the U.S. And those smuggling organizations do engage in information and misinformation as a matter of marketing. We heard about this in 2014 during the, you know, quote-unquote border crisis that summer that smugglers were telling people about some sort of amnesty that they could get if they came up by a particular date in June. Like, this was then turned into in American domestic politics, oh, they're talking about DACA, which people wouldn't have been eligible for and bore very little resemblance to that. But, like, it was very easy to use that as, oh, well, if the smugglers are telling people there's an amnesty and we have offered a thing to people in the U.S. now, that must be what they're talking about. There are things that don't actually have any bearing in reality whatsoever. It doesn't require—they're not required to kind of point to a press clipping and Criminal, say this criminals is what we're talking about. Criminals sometimes lie, yeah. right. as well as doing other crimes. Right, right. right. But, like, at the same time— People have pretty strong networks and are hearing things about, you know, they're hearing from people who have made it to the U.S. or they're not hearing from people and assuming that those people, you know, have kind of disappeared. Ultimately, the decision getting made really isn't, oh, this is going to be a super safe journey through Mexico. It's, okay, I am risking my life to do this thing, but ultimately— I may be allowed to stay in the U.S. and get legal status. And that possibility is worth all the Michigas it takes to get there. This matters because the actual policy that the Trump administration has been pursuing really aggressively since the first caravan in April has been in large part focused on conditions of detention once people are in the U.S. They engaged in mass prosecution of parents, which resulted in 
widespread family separation. They are currently trying to expand long-term detention of families together. This is in part based in, well, we don't want them to abscond into the U.S., but it's in part intended to serve as a deterrent. It's intended to make sure that no one is sending the message back that, like, you can just get into the U.S. and you're cool. If the actual calculus, though, isn't about the conditions that you would be surviving before ultimately getting a decision on legal status, but the possibility that you might ultimately get legal status, then the problem isn't the conditions of detention. The problem is existing asylum law and whether or not it can, it is going to be applied to allow these people to stay in the U.S., which is why some of the stuff that Jeff Sessions is doing over at DOJ in restricting the interpretation of asylum law for victims of gang violence, in attempting to make it much harder to do full reviews of the kind of initial asylum screening interview for people who fail them, all of these kind of small, nitpicky sounding things that are going to ultimately decrease the possibility of a favorable asylum finding at the end of the process might end up mattering more than the stuff that Donald Trump cares a lot about of showing a tough face at the U.S.-Mexico border. But this is also, I mean— I would say it returns us in some ways to the classical case for the immigration grand bargain and the amnesty for the bulk of the millions of long-settled, unauthorized residents of the United States. Because another part of the puzzle is that because the United States has large communities of unauthorized Spanish-speaking migrants from Latin America, right? Like that is a population into which one can plausibly aspire to, you know, dissolve essentially, right? And the United States has a substantial like apprehension and deportation apparatus, but also an enormous pool of people that we are attempting to drain through that mechanism. And it's a pool that the Trump administration keeps making larger with its various TPS denials and and other kinds of things like that. And if you did not have that, right, if you regularized the status of the vast majority of people who have been here for a long time and who are mostly not from Central America – then you would have the enforcement apparatus looking at a much, much smaller group of people into which things like maybe I can not show up for a court date and go somewhere start to become a much less plausible kind of strategy. But Trump along a number of dimensions, like he wants – he really wants to have it at all, right? Like he wants no amnesty for people who are already here. He wants no leniency for people who are coming here. And then he also wants no generosity on the trade policy front, right? So like a big point of emphasis in his renegotiation of NAFTA was to try to reduce the volume of Mexican net exports to the United States. I don't know whether the changes he made achieve that or not. But if he does achieve his policy goal, right, what he's doing is he's he's increasing the, the delta by which it makes sense to immigrate to the United States of America. And this is like was also – this was long before Trump. I mean this was the Bush administration, right? But if you look at what the U.S. government says about the DR-CAFTA trade agreement with these countries, it says that what's so good about these agreements is that they allowed the United States to drastically increase its agricultural exports into Central America. I think I would say like we, we drove a really hard bargain 
in those trade deals, right? The Central American countries made a lot of concessions to the United States on investor protections, on intellectual property. They really opened up their agricultural goods markets. We gave them essentially cheap concessions in terms of parity with what some other countries already had, but we did not open up our market to sugar exports, right, because our sugar people didn't want that. Then flash forward X number of years later, and it's like, well, economic conditions have really deteriorated in rural parts of Central America. A large number of people have came into the cities, which if you think in like a classical trade theory, right, like that is correct. The United States has a comparative advantage in bulk agricultural commodity production. Central Americans should not be sitting on rinky-dink inefficient farms. They should be flooding into the cities where presumably they're all going to get jobs doing uh, textile manufacturing or something. But you can read like World Bank report on like the economic impact of DRCAFTA. And then there's these things where they're like, there's a tremendous opportunity here, but it will hinge fundamentally on the capacity of Central American governments to reform institutions and invest in infrastructure. And like, guess what, right? It's like when people flood in from the countryside into cities that do not in fact have infrastructure or thriving economies or a sound rule of law, like that's a that's a good way to have a lot of gang violence and, and other kinds of problems here. Even though the Obama administration and to an extent the Trump administration have been very, very eager to frame this as like an economic development issue in Central America, only to the extent that what promoting economic development would be politically easy in the United States. Nobody is saying, okay, we need to take on like the sugar beet growers for the sake of improving this. Um, I sort of get why. Like that would be a tough political pitch to like an entrenched interest group. Like we need to screw you over to help some people in Honduras. But like if you're Bottom line analysis of the situation is that we need to help people in Honduras. This is a big problem for the United States that people want to flee. Like, we should do something about it. Uh, like, not something small, but like something big that would really be helpful. I am so glad that I get to use this anecdote. Uh, I was talking to somebody when we were in Texas who's done some research in Central America, and she was saying that she talked a bunch to, you know, Guatemala has been the big driver of migration this summer. There's a weird decrease in migration from El Salvador that there are lots of theories on. And there's a big increase in migration from Guatemala where it's always been a little more economic than humanitarian. And in particular, a lot of rural Guatemalan coffee farmers who are just can't make money on the coffee crop anymore. And this researcher I was talking to said that she had done an interview with Time magazine and then seen that they also had done an interview with the head of Starbucks talking about, you know, the kind of future of the global coffee market. And he said, well, we're worried about the long-term viability of Central America. So we've been increasing our capacity in Southeast Asia instead, already pivoting away. And it's like, okay, so you're worried about how well you're going to be able to sell Guatemalan coffee. So you're flooding the market with this non-Guatemalan coffee, which will make it harder to be a viable Guatemalan coffee right. farmer. Obviously, there are lots and lots of questions here about the long-term impacts of climate change and right. climate migration. There are also lots and lots of questions about the U.S.'s role in governance and politics in Central America to begin with that are kind of bracketed when you think of it as an economic development problem, because then you get to assume that the U.S. is always working with governments in Central America that are going to promote its interests rather than kind of looking at how that sausage gets made. Right. But you're right. There is a world where 
you know, the U.S. is like calling out Starbucks for not doing more to ensure the well-being of Guatemalan coffee farmers so that they don't come into the U.S. And of course, climate change, right? I mean, if you listen to Tuesday's climate episode, right, it's like one thing you will see in like a standard economic model of climate change is that on some margins, it's cheaper to just let people move to a respond to climate change than to actually mitigate the climate change, right? But the question there is like, well, do you want to do that, right? And if you accept the view that it would be very bad for a large number of people to move from rural Guatemala to Houston, then like you have to take steps to ensure the viability of agriculture in rural Guatemala. And the Trump administration is really not doing that. But I, I do think it's interesting that with this argument, you know, we're seeing the, the conversation that Trump is having re- regarding tariffs and that right. Trump is definitely willing to go, you know, if Iowans are suffering as the result of tariffs against China, well, that's just tough slash here's a bailout. But on this particular issue, we're not seeing kind of the same strength of action exactly. Right. And I mean, it's just it always it's hard to even take Donald Trump seriously on some level because he himself doesn't take seriously the things that he chooses to define as the main problems for America. But, like, that's the issue here. Like, I think I think the Obama administration, if you ask them, like, why aren't you, like, really going all in on, like, Central American economic development, they would say on some level because, like, they don't love these child migrants, but they also just don't think it's that big of a deal. But, like, Trump purports to believe that this is, like, a first-order national problem. So, like, you should do something about it, right? Like, he, they increased the military budget by, like, $100 billion for, like, God knows what. And, like, it is true that we give some economic development aid to Honduras, but, like, it's not nearly proportionate to what Trump or any other president does when they're faced with a problem that they genuinely take seriously. So this is the risk of the two-track presidency, right? Like, you have the people who who understand, you know, you don't get people to stop leaving Honduras by cutting aid to Honduras, but who also don't think, you know, who think that it's definitely a problem that we have more families coming, you know, into the U.S. than we necessarily, like, have capacity to process in any of that, but who do not think it is as important a problem as cooperating with Mexico and Central America on some other things. And then you have Donald Trump, who simultaneously thinks this is the most important problem and thinks that the people who are coming in are all criminals who have been sent by somebody, right? Donald Trump has a really robust theory of what's going on that just totally has nothing to do with reality. And it doesn't appear to be possible to say, you can believe that this is very important, but you should adopt a totally different theory of why it's happening. Yesterday, there was reportedly a blow up between John Bolton and John Kelly in the White House over this issue. Uh, John Bolton and Trump appear to be very upset that uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Christian Nielsen hasn't somehow reduce the number of people getting apprehended coming into the United States, uh, that, like, that is how they are measuring success. Uh, And Kelly, who was former Homeland Security Secretary, who is Nielsen's mentor, but who also, as former Southcom director, like, understands how these things work, is pushing back against that simplistic narrative. But if there is momentum in the White House to override the Department of Homeland Security, not to mention the White House chief of staff, and say, no, we're going to take punitive measures because it's this is really important to the president and this is the way the president thinks this problem can be solved, then you end up just overriding any 
actual understanding of what can be done to solve the problem. But the policy heads don't necessarily have a response to that, right? You have two options. You can either ignore what the president is doing and risk just being caught up short and then have to implement whatever policy the White House comes up with, or you can try to redirect that anger into things you can control, which is how we got zero-tolerance prosecutions and expanded detention and all of this stuff over the summer. Neither of those is super great for migrants. Neither of them is necessarily going to long-term help Central America, but those appear to be the options if you're on the second track of the two-track presidency and the first track is really, really mad about something that's not necessarily in your control. So do you understand what John Bolton's side of this argument was. This is the kind of thing where, like, I think I understand from Trump's public statements, like, what his view of the situation is. Bolton does not have the reputation for being, like, wildly uninformed about things, but is is very hawkish. So I could see him favoring a confrontational Solution to a problem, like in general, if there is a problem in international affairs, John Bolton tends to favor a very confrontational approach to it. But I still don't understand what approach that would be in this case. I don't know. And I don't, you know, there may be information that comes out between when we tape this episode and when it is released. But from what we know now, it's not at all clear whether John Bolton is like, well, the president said cut aid to Honduras, so we should cut aid to Honduras, or whether John Bolton has some kind of other punitive thing that can be done in mind. But it does appear to be the case that Bolton doesn't believe there's a downside risk in threatening these countries because we're the U.S. and we can do what we want, whereas John Kelly, who as Homeland Security Secretary made a big deal about how finally the U.S. was going to invest in Central America as a way of stopping this migrant flow, does see there being a very big downside in blaming Honduras for people leaving Honduras. Well— We will blame you only if you leave the weeds for other podcasts. So, you know, you should check us out. Check out our our sister shows. Be aware of our special midterm episodes on Wednesdays running through Election Day. They are fantastic. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner. And the weeds will return on Tuesday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.